You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good morning, good afternoon, welcome to ODI and welcome to um, all our guests um, online to this exciting event about the politics of growth. My name is Marta Foresti. Um, I work here at ODI on a number of issues, most lately on issues related to migration and development, but I'm one of the historic members of the politics and governance program at ODI uh, that with Tim, Dirk and others has worked over the years on the issues of politics and growth. Um, my task is only to welcome you and say hello, and, um, and I just want to share one thought with you. I was thinking this morning about this relationship between politics and growth and thinking that it seems to me that we've gone a long way. We traveled um, quite some journey from the days when we all politely agreed that the two things were intimately related um, and that together they affected development outcomes. And I'd like to think that today we are in a position where beyond that polite acknowledgement and economists and political scientists sort of being cautious to one another and recognize each other's values are increasingly working together um, you know, to, you know, to do things in different ways and to affect the way we work, we think, and we talk about the practice of development in ways that is informed by both um, politics and economic thinking. And I was thinking that one of the reasons why I am um, struck by the journeys we travel is that I compared it with other famous dichotomies or relationships that we live with in development that I think have not quite gone beyond that initial stage of courteous and polite recognition of the fact that two things are related. Think of humanitarian action and development, or think of something that is very present in my mind at the moment. Everybody seems to recognize that development and migration go together, but very few have good ideas about what to do about it in practice. Well, on this one, I think we've made some progress, and we're going to hear a lot about it um, um, today. Another reason why I'm optimistic and I think there is you know, something in this relationship that is moving forward is because really influential books are being written uh, on this topic and we have on the panel today two authors going to talk about that. Um, and I also like to think that here at ODI, at EZID in Manchester, at DFID, at Harvard and other places, we've all played a role in trying to make some progress on this agenda. And to do that, I cannot think of a better person to help us navigate uh, this relationship, its history and where we got to today than my colleague um, Tim Kelsell, who is a senior research, um, senior research fellow here at ODI, um, previous editor of African Affairs, but also, importantly, the author of one of the landmark books a few years ago uh, on this very topic, Business Politics and the State in Africa, Challenging the Orthodoxy of Growth and Transformation which I think plays in, you know, is an, you know, as an ideal contributing chair to help um, guide the discussion today. Um, so without further ado, Tim, over to you, um, and welcome everyone, and really look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Marta. Uh, you're, you're too kind. Um, so how to kickstart economic growth, how to sustain it, and how to transform the economy in a way that creates good jobs and allows entire societies to escape poverty. I mean, these are pressing concerns for development policymakers. Are some political systems better at fostering growth than others? Should developing countries copy the institutions of the West? Is equitable growth possible? And what can reformers do to encourage transformation? These are just some of the questions that are pertinent here. And today I'm pleased to welcome four panelists 
whose recent work offers important insights into these matters. Yuanyuan Ang of the University of Michigan, whose book How China Escaped the Poverty Trap, has been receiving rave reviews and is set to become the latest development blockbuster. Rachel Glenister, formerly of JPAL MIT and now Chief Economist at DFID, who's going to be talking uh, in a private capacity about how voice and accountability relate to economic growth. Dirk Willem Teveld of ODI, who last year co-authored a major approach paper on supporting economic transformation. And Kunal Sen, who's edited book Deals and Development, uh, in which, full disclosure, I have a chapter on Cambodia, provides an intrepid framework for dissecting the political and economic deals that underpin or undermine transformative growth. I'd also like to welcome you, our audience here in London, and all of those who are watching overseas, and remind you that you can follow the event uh, using ODI's Twitter handle, at ODIDev, and the event hashtag Politics of Growth. And for those of you who are watching online, do please send us in your questions, and we will try to put some of those to our panelists later when we open the discussion to the floor. And also, just to remind you that uh, there will be a lunch provided here at ODI at 1.30. So, Kunal, starting with you, one of the surprising things that your book identifies is the fact that most poor countries that are poor today are not poor because they never grow, but because they cannot sustain that growth. Yeah, I mean, the conventional view on growth is that growth is to do with long-run processes, which happen lots of, over lots of years, several decades. Uh, and so if you see different living standards across countries, and we see that quite a bit across many countries in the, world, in the living world, it's just because of growth rates being different. That's the way we see it in economics. And it's partly linked to the way we think of growth as being steady-state growth. But that's not what growth actually is if you look at the, if you look at the data. Uh, what you tend to see are developing countries growing very fast, often much faster than, than richer countries for quite long periods of time, but shrinking, shrinking rapidly and more, much more often than rich countries. So in that, in, if you think about growth in that way, slow growth is not about slow growing, but because of rapid and more frequent shrinking. So it's this boom and bust pattern that really exactly. kind of so creates the, the problem about, for developing about growth countries. In that way, you've got to yeah. think about why do we see these booms, booms and bust growth rates, yeah. and what is it that actually allows booms to happen, and why do we often see busts in growth? And the argument of the book is that essentially at the root of this boom and bust pattern of growth is politics. And you have a model in which there are kind of three crucial elements, the political settlements, uh, the rent space, and the deal space, which you use to explain how it is that some countries are able to actually escape this boom and bust pattern and sustain growth and escape poverty. So I'd like to kind of take you through those concepts one by one, if I may. So first of all, the, the political settlement. What, what is the political settlement? What do you mean by that? The political settlement in, in, in a very a very short form is the, the way the balance of power is between ruling elites in a particular country. Are elites cohesive? Are they fragmented? Who has got the power? Who holds, uh, who has, who is being excluded from power? And this political settlement we tend to see varies a lot across the countries we studied and changes over time. And then the, the rent space, what do you mean by that? The rent space is a shorthand way of capturing the market structure of the economy, but it's more than that. It's about where economic actors are located in the economy in terms of are they in rent thick sectors, mining, 
uh, natural resources, other incorporative sectors, garments, footwear, uh, leather, and so on. So it's a way to capture not just the economic structure, but where the rents lie in, the, in a particular economy. And you have some quite uh, specific terms for describing these different sections of the rent space. Power brokers, magicians, workhorses, and rent seekers, rentiers. Can, can you say a little bit more about those, those terms and what they mean? Uh, so let's start with rentiers. The rentiers uh -huh. are essentially capitalists in the, in the natural resource sectors, which tend to be the rent-thick sectors, and also the exporting sectors. Uh, so, you know, mining is an obvious example here. Um, and along with that, we also have capitalists or economic actors in non-tradable sectors, uh, like utilities, construction, and so on, where also we have a lot of rent. Uh, we call them power brokers. And then the other two set of economic actors are magicians who are essentially in labor-intensive manufacturing and exporting industries where there isn't that much rent. There, there's a more competitive sector because you're facing world prices, along with the workhorses, which tend to be the informal sector, again, in the non-tradable part of the economy. But the point that you're making is that these economic actors have different arcs of the state. Renters and power brokers don't want states to discipline them, don't want states to regulate them. They actually want weak state capacity. But mm -hmm. magicians and workhorses need regulation, need industrial, po industrial policy, particularly for magicians, and so they want effective and a, a well-functioning state. So, so in that sense, it does affect the way state capacity evolves over time. And this affects what you refer to as the deal space, which is the third big concept in your model. So can you say a little bit about the deal space? We have a fairly simple hypothesis, or a set mm -hmm. of hypotheses. One core hypothesis is that so how does growth get started? I mean, that's like the big first big question. And our hypothesis is that when we have a movement in the deal space from what we call disordered deals, which are deals where essentially elites are offering, elites are offering this to economic actors, but they're not being honored, to ordered deals, that's when growth gets started. Okay. Uh, but then growth And an ordered deal, can you say a little bit more about, what do you mean by an ordered deal? So ordered deals are a situation where elites are offering these deals to economic actors, but economic actors are fairly reassured that these deals will be actually honored. Okay. So it's essentially fulfilling the credible commitment problem. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter at this stage whether markets are open or competitive, in, in your view. What we have seen in our case studies, and so we have 10 case studies from different parts of Africa and, and Asia, that the first movement that happens in growth is a movement from disordered deals to ordered deals from unstable political settlements, often from chaos and, and conflict. Think about Uganda and Museveni, think about Rwanda uh, and uh, RPF, think about Hun Sen in, in Cambodia. And that's so essentially a shift from unstable to stable political settlements, often under authoritarian regimes, which then leads to a movement from disorder to order deals, which kickstarts growth. That's been pretty much the case that we, the thing we've, the common element of all growth acquisition we've found across most of our countries. So that kickstarts growth. And then in some uh, countries, as I understand it, there are feedback loops which are positive and which kind of encourage the growth to be sustained. And then there are others which are, in other cases, the, those feedback uh, loops are negative and, and cause growth to collapse. Can you say just a little bit more about that? So one property of growth accelerations that you found, and I think it probably applies to a lot of other countries also, not just in our 10 case studies, the deals that are often offered, uh, offered uh, that are ordered are closed ordered deals, uh, which in other words it means that they're offered to only a few economic actors, in part because those are the people, those are the economic actors the political elites know very well, in part they aren't because there aren't too many economic actors in a country as it comes out of chaos and conflict, so those are often closed ordered deals. 
But the problem also is that often the deals are offered to renters and power brokers, in other words, in the renting sectors, partly because of the kinds of rent extraction, partly because there's often the kind of economy that, that sectors can grow quite quickly. And, what they, and so essentially, there are two kinds of feedback loops that happen there. One is an economic feedback loop, which is that when you have renters and power brokers becoming more dominant, they essentially want weak state capacity. They are not interested in having a more progressive increase in incremental change in state capacity that is for the better. They really have no interest in that. So that's one, one mm -hmm. feedback loop. But the other feedback loop that we see, particularly in countries where there are very strong civil society and third-party institutions like, mm -hmm. like Supreme Court and so on, is often closed out of deals are seen as cronistic and crony capitalists, and there's a pushback against those deals. And when there's a pushback against those deals, that feedback loop often leads to the situation the deals again become disordered, leading mm -hmm. to a growth collapse. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Yuan Yuan, I'm going to bring you in now because... Um, this idea of growth being affected by mm -hmm. feedback loops suggests that growth is kind of a, a non-linear and an iterative process. And I think this is also a theme of your book. Yeah, um, and so I, I'm, I'm especially delighted to be on this panel because it definitely overlaps with Kunai's theme about these um, mutual uh, interaction between governance and economic growth. And I think in general in development, we have been very stuck in a linear frame of thinking for, for quite some time. We've either debated that it's growth that leads to good governance or it's good governance that leads to growth. And we've really invested a lot of resources and thinking into defending either side of the camp. And if you really sort of step back and, and, and think about this debate, at least to me when I started writing this book, I thought that's a very artificial debate, no? Because it's sort of quite obvious that development is what I call a co-evolutionary process. It has to be that politics affects economics, economics affects politics, as Konai has very nicely summarized. Um, but we, I don't just want to use the term co-evolution as a metaphor because instead I want to go one step further and ask if it is the case that development is a sequence of feedback loops, then what is the first step of this whole sequence, right? That's really the crux of the question. So how do you escape the poverty trap? And when I say poverty trap, I'm saying that poverty reinforces weak institutions, weak institutions reinforce poverty. So what is the first step that takes us out of this sort of feedback loops and launches development. And so the answer that I arrive uh, through my research, mostly in the case of China, but with a few sort of test cases in other parts of the world, um, surprised me. I, I literally arrived at the conclusion when I wrote the last page and went back to the introduction and rewrote the introduction. <laughs> and, and the answer is that the first step to development is to harness weak institutions to build markets. And that's paradoxical because we've always thought that if you have things like corruption, you know, patronage, lack of intellectual property rights, and so forth, we think of those as the impediments to development. So we need to get rid of them, replace them with best practices, then we could have growth. But we know that in practice it's very hard to get rid of these weak institutions. And so what I find, at least amply demonstrated in the case of China, is that instead of trying in vain to get rid of weak institutions that look weak by first world standards, they simply took these weak institutions and then repurpose them, mix them up, you know, add them up, recombine them, repurpose them, and use them to actually kickstart development. So one concrete example might be 
should I give a concrete well, let's, example? Um, let's let's come yeah. back to that because we're going to talk more about the case of China uh, in, in a few minutes. But um, Dirk, I'd like to bring you in quickly here. I mean, does that does does this sort of approach, this thinking about development, does this resonate with um, with SET's approach in ODI to promoting structural transformation? Um, I mean, I suppose let me first say that um, I mean this approach I think is is, is very nice. Uh, so Kunal's book uh, got to be congratulated on a wonderful book. I think you're uh, uh, you and the editors are uh, magicians, uh, as it were, and uh, um, and of course also congratulations to the, the workhorses who are doing the sort of the, the domestic case studies uh, underlying this. Um, I think you've got a point there about. Uh, the importance of uh, downturns in growth and making sure that that's being addressed. So poor countries aren't uh, poor because they, they haven't grown. They are poor because they've had many more downturns than middle-income and, and, and high-income countries. And then you can uh, people have thought about what can you then do about it. So you think about uh, sort of the resilience of economies uh, and uh, uh, and you can have economic, social, and governance reasons for the resilience. And I think you firmly look at the politics of it, uh, so the governance explanation of, of making countries more resilient to, uh, to shocks uh, and the like. And, and I would sort of argue that from, from a set perspective, well, we would argue that in order to sustain growth, you need to transform your economy. So it's not just about holding pattern growth, um, uh, the same structures happen, but you need to transform your economy into a more productive economy uh, that is more resilient to shocks, and, and therefore th that becomes really important. And if you, if you think about that, um, uh, about growth and different type of growth, you, you, you can think about sort of the ingredients of growth. You think about the recipe of growth and sort of ingredients of, of investment, of uh, openness, and so on. The commission for growth uh, identified some of those. The recipe, that's when you're in, your, in your final chapter that you look at, uh, very interesting thinking about do we now know how to bring these ingredients together. Um, I think there's two more elements that, that, that I would bring in as well. Um, um, one is, is thinking around the cooks uh, of the sort of the meal that need to bring these, these um, uh, ingredients together uh, following a recipe. So you need to have good cooks, you need to have good leaders who can set visions. Um, that for, for, uh, is also very important for economic transformation. So those countries that have transformed um, have, uh, have done so with a sort of a credible leadership that has been able to articulate a vision of the future and has uh, persuaded the others in the country that this is a, a good thing that they should buy into. Um, and the other thing I think I would, I would argue, the fourth thing, is that you need to have a sort of a menu of options as well. So you could put all your, uh, um, all your eggs in one basket and say, we've only got one. Uh, uh, sort of meal on the on the menu. Uh, you've got the ingredients, the recipe. You've got a, good, a very fantastic cook. Uh, we know the recipe, and we've got the ingredients. And you can put a fantastic steak on the um, on the on the table. But what if the the consumer uh, wants uh, fish, doesn't want steak? Um, you you actually supply something in your economy um, that isn't that isn't right. Uh, you need to have something else. You need to have something that's, that is in demand. And that's really important, and I think your chapter, Tim, uh, as chair, I think you highlighted that issue in Cambodia, for example, that the interaction with the international economy is really important. And it, so it's not just about um, governance, it's really important, it, political economy is absolutely crucial, uh, but you also need to go into the right area. So you need to think about technically uh, right areas, the economically, uh, uh, economically sound 
issues you need to, where you need to go into. And I think there are a range of techniques that, that uh, the SET program is also looking at, which, which are sort of the, how from product space, the, the productivity analysis, um, multiplier, uh, multiplier analysis, and so on, where you can sort of identify which sectors have the biggest bang for the buck, which help you to transform your economy, and which ones help you to link into where there is a great demand. Uh, from, right. from the outside world. So linking governance capabilities with where there's demand is really important so that you've got a menu of options that you can both uh, uh, sell um, uh, steak but also a, a fish meal. So, so the external environment is, um, is very important as well. Okay, um, I, I want to go back a, a little bit. So you talk about the importance of the, the top leadership and the vision that they may, they may have for development. Rachel, I wonder if you have any reflections on that. I mean, sticking with the culinary metaphor, is it, is it the chef that matters or is it the, the sous chefs who are, who are doing all the, all the kind of actual chopping and dicing? Yeah, so I, I mean, I guess I come at this, this from the perspective of, um, so first of all, that, you know, there's no one thing that, that we can say, oh, do this and you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, have a great leader and it'll be fine. Um, what we're, you know, what you're looking, if, if you're the kind of person like me who's most of the time working on the ground, working with governments to try and, you know, improve, uh, improve economic prospects and governance and institutions on the ground, you, you, you know, I like what Wen Wen was saying about you've got you to work with the institutions you have, right? I, you know, it's nice to have this, big debate about do institutions matter, but when you're actually trying to provide advice to people, you have to work with the institutions you have. Um, so, uh, you know, and to some extent, the leaders that you have, right? So, um, so in some sense, I'm, I'm less interested in, you know, is it the leader or, because, because when I'm doing my work, I, you know, it is whatever the leader is, you know. Um, so, so I think there's some different approaches that people have taken over time to say, Okay, institutions matter, but what do we actually do to improve them, mm -hmm. given where we are? Mm -hmm. um, and one of the approaches that is probably the one that has the biggest amount of money behind it um, in the aid industry is community-driven development. So, you know, trying to give money to communities locally and try and change informal institutions on the ground by through the mechanism of giving them money and saying, oh, if we give you money, you also have to, you know, make women, you know, listen to women or uh, include the voice of youth. And then we will change these informal institutions by kind of learning by doing, mm -hmm. right? And we look, so that was the first thing we looked at. And that, that actually proved quite effective in improving economic outcomes. So we've just gone back to communities, you know, seven years later in, in, in Sierra Leone and found that they, the ones that got this money are still economically better off. So you've had long-term impacts on their economies. You, but the institutions haven't changed at all, and they never changed. You know, they, you, you, you give people money, you tell them to listen to women, and they listen to women while you're giving them money, but as soon as, you know, anything outside that, they don't listen to them. So the institutions haven't changed, but economically it was quite powerful. So we kind of got depressed about that. Um, and then... You know, and then there was this big move to, again, work kind of more on the informal institutions through, um, there was a big push around the WDR in 2004, you know, put women on the local health committee or, um, you know, everything should include, uh, you know, should be, have more local voice. And again, coming from outside. 
Um, you know, and Lant was a big author of that report. And um, so we all went around testing that and seeing if it was effective. Uh, pretty mixed, not very encouraging evidence of that. But the things that, has, that people have tried but that seems to be more promising is strengthening the formal institutions of democracy. So, um, and that's now happening in a number of places. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we saw that and thought, well, let's try in Sierra Leone. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, I'm gonna, we're going to come back and uh, talk a bit more about that later. But I want to go back to, uh, to you, Yuan Yuan, now and, and, and talk in a bit more detail um, about China because it's had this you know, extraordinary growth. Mm. And uh, I, I saw in the news very recently that China's now committed to eradicating poverty by 2020. Um, and I think what a lot of people probably don't understand, but which, well, maybe we forget, but it comes up very clearly in your book, is just how poor China was in, in 1980. Yeah, um, some facts are, are sort of well worth iterating. Um, because we hear so much about China's rise that we forget that it's in fact a very poor country. But say in 1980, income per capita in China is actually lower than Bangladesh, Chad, and Malawi. Um, but to be sure, because it was a communist system, certain public services were much higher than in other countries. So literacy rates were high yeah, than in India, for example, and they had barefoot doctors. But the income per capita was low, and I think consumption is another good metric um, the nutrition level and the calorie consumption in the 1970s was not higher than in the 1930s when China was in the midst of civil war. So, you know, in a 40-year gap, there was basically no improvement in consumption and economic growth. So it was, it was a very poor country in 1980. And so when we think about the amount of transformation that they've made in just a matter of a single generation, uh, it's pretty amazing. Another sort of relevant fact is that there's this often heard sort of achievement that China lifted 700 million people out mm -hmm, of poverty. Mm -hmm. They actually did that by not having anti-poverty policies. Anti-poverty policies that we hear about, which mm -hmm. you just mentioned, is actually a very new thing in China. Mm -hmm. It sort of started when Xi Jinping mm -hmm. came to power in 2012. So the 700 million people that were lifted out of poverty was done through market liberalization and national development, but not poverty programs. Okay, well, I mean, that's very interesting. <laughs> it's, also, it's, also, um, it's also quite challenging to, to some of us at ODI, and I think it's quite challenging for you know, international agendas like the SDGs. So maybe you can talk us through in a little more detail now how China kick-started growth and, and got to this uh, situation where it's now able to talk realistically about eradicating poverty. Um, so how it kick-started growth was it started with politics, as Knau has reminded us. But when I say politics, I don't mean democratization, because as we know, when the reformist leadership took over, they made a firm decision that they were going to keep the CCP solely in power. There was not going to be any democratization in China. But nevertheless, they actually changed how the bureaucracy operated internally. And so that's a part that we don't see and therefore many people don't understand. And just to sort of give a catchphrase to describe what they did, I call it directed improvisation. How this works basically is actually kind of a generic idea of adaptive development that you need to have improvisation from bottom-up actors, obviously, but you also need to have a director, a top-down player, 
who sets the rules and the parameters for improvisation. And within China, they applied this principle to within the party state. And just to put things in context, when I say the party state, the bureaucracy, we're talking about an organization of 50 million bureaucrats. 50 million is the size of South Korea's population. <laughs> so, so this is directed improvisation um, within the bureaucracy, but still to a very large scale. How it works is that the central government changed its role as a leadership. And going back to Dirk's analogy about you know, what's a good leader, you know, what's a good chef, um, in, under Mao, the central leadership was a commander. So Mao tried to command his way to modernization targets, dictate, um, dictates, and so forth, and he failed completely. When Deng took over, he decided that we're not going to do the command system anymore, but I'm going to do directing. There are a few things. For example, they would have to set up parameters for what local officials can and cannot do when they do adaptive development. They would have to set up very high-powered incentives for those who succeed. And the central government has the authority to scale up adaptations. And so by this combination of this top-down direction and bottom-up improvisation from 50 million bureaucrats all over a very big country, you have a development process that's actually very locally tailored, flexible, mm -hmm. uh, nimble, and adaptive development is now a buzzword in global development, and, uh -huh. and China is surprisingly a very good illustration of that. And what you say actually is that China has a franchise model of bureaucracy, right? Can you explain a little bit more about that? You know, what are the incentives that get local bureaucrats to try and bring in investment? Yeah, and so um, when we think about franchise, like McDonald's, mm -hmm. the idea of a franchise is basically that you have a top-down hierarchy, mm -hmm. but very localized operations. Mm -hmm. So if you go to McDonald's throughout the world, in Asia, where I come from, they have McDonald's with pineapples, which is great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very delicious. <laughs> and so, so you can, but, but it always looks like McDonald's. So there's a certain consistency mm -hmm. and shared principles about this organization. But operationally, it's very decentralized and very localized. Mm -hmm. And so it's some, somewhat similar in the Chinese bureaucracy as well. Because they are the Chinese Communist Party, there's certain things that are very unified and very mm -hmm. consistent. And outwardly, it looks like a very powerful communist government. But inward, it is the, the operations are actually very decentralized. So for every central mandate that comes down from Beijing, the actual implementation of it just varies tremendously throughout the country. And that's what I mean by franchising. And uh, as I understand it, 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 in the Chinese system, it doesn't really matter how local bureaucrats generate growth. It's kind of, you know, go out, build on your strengths, mm -hmm. bring investment in, grow the economy, but then the incentive is that you get to keep some of the proceeds of that growth, and you can do that through rather kind of informal, uh, what some might say corrupt means, or sometimes through slightly more formal means of doing that, but it is a kind of local profit sharing. Um, you're exactly right. The, the yeah. term is profit sharing, yeah. and it's exactly like franchising. Mm -hmm. And it creates a very high-powered incentive system for performance. Uh, for example, if you bring in investment into your locality as a civil servant, you could keep up to 5%, 10% of it. That's millions and millions of dollars 
but your salary as a civil servant is only maybe a hundred US dollars a month. Mm -hmm. right? So it operated basically as a profit sharing system. <coughs> that creates a lot of problems, mm -hmm. including corruption, as you mm -hmm. pointed out, mm -hmm. which is now a big problem for China, mm -hmm. and they're trying to fight corruption. Um, but at the same time, it, they, they channel these energies of what we might think of as corruption towards <coughs> performance defined narrowly as capital accumulation. And it does bring uh, extraordinary growth. And uh, you have these um, case studies of, I think you call them upstart county and, and, and glorious county. And I think it's, it's in glorious county that they have what's called a beehive strategy where you know, even the, the Department of Sports, the Department of Women's Affairs, every bureaucratic agency in that county is tasked with bringing in investors. Go and get investors to generate growth. So there's this kind of single-minded focus on growth. And as a result, all kinds of investment comes in, but then often that kind of gets tangled up in red tape and all kinds of members of the street-level bureaucracy are trying to shake people down and skim off rents from these enterprises. And that takes me back to uh, your book, Kunal, and this notion between ordered and disordered deals, closed deals and open deals. And I wasn't quite sure where China fitted in to this schema. Actually, I think, and as you talked about the Beehive campaign, I was reading that particular chapter on the Beehive campaign. I thought, wow, this is absolutely what we were talking about in our <laughs> book. That's pretty amazing, really. Um, because that was essentially a, a kind of a move from a disorder or the deal where you had local bureaucrats with, who are trying to get local investors in, uh, mostly friends and family, um, and offering them chance to come invest, where the incentives were that if they do that, then there's a profit sharing arrangement. And so it was very much an ordered deal. Now, so that was a very important part of the story of why there was a, a growth acceleration at that time. What the, the point then is that were they, were they closed or open deals? I would feel, reading the chap that particular chapter in the book, they were both closed and open deals. They were closed because they were offered to friends and family initially. So in that sense, they were closed. Mm -hmm. But there were so many bureaucrats offering these deals, there's so many investors, in that sense, they were open. And if you contrast China with some of the other countries we've looked at in, in our book, um, that's not so clear that in most other countries, you tend to see smaller sets of economic actors with a smaller set of political elites mm -hmm. where they're clearly more closed than open. I think in China, we did see a mix of uh, close and open, and possibly more open over time, uh, from what I could make out in, in our understanding of the way this, it worked over time. Raymond, what did you think about Kunal's framework, and did it kind of have any purchase on the Chinese situation? I think that the idea of open and close, as you describe, is highly relevant. I mean, in the case of the Beehive campaign, it is inclusive development <laughs> to the extent that the entire bureaucracy of a city, which is about 20,000 people out of a million people, all of these 20,000 civil servants were asked to participate in this process. But I think you are exactly right when you say that it's open and closed because it's open completely, but only to an elite strata, right, of that particular society. And I think maybe something that's useful to bear in mind is that it's not only in China, but I think in most developing countries, you don't really have a strict divide between state and society because you always have this intermediate group of people who are halfway between state and society. Traditionally, China has always been this way. They have a gentry class, 
And I wish there were European historians here who could jump in. I'm sure it's not unique to China, right? In European history, we would find, you know, local elites who were who could who, who could speak directly to the prince, but who were accountable to his people. And so, yes, I think you're absolutely right that opening the deals were a big part of the kickstarting, but it was a semi-closed open. Okay. Rachel, any reflections on this? Well, I was just in hearing this thinking how, you know, your description of setting the in right incentives and then letting people have the flexibility to respond to them is actually, you know, your standard economic prescription about how you should do things when you don't have full information, right? Get the incentives right and give people freedom to do it. Um, you know, it can be quite hard to do that often, um, but it's, uh, and it, I'm also struck by the, by the link to some work that Imran um, Rasool has done at, at UCL on, on bureaucratic effectiveness um, in Nigeria, showing that, you know, giving bureaucrats more uh, more flexibility in terms of how they respond to the needs um, actually led, even in what we think of as an incredibly corrupt um, you know, state and bureaucracy within that state, giving that flexibility actually proved to create more more effective um, results. So, uh, just really interested in that link to kind of what would be a kind of pure economic, you know, way of, of thinking about it. Great. Now, um, Dirk, one of the interesting arguments in Yuan Wen's book is that. Um, reform is it's incremental so it builds on what already exists but it, it's very wide-ranging sort of almost every aspect of the bureaucracy is is changed uh, and, and are involved in this and almost every sector of the economy also whereas in Set's paper um, you suggest that it, for many countries a more targeted approach might be um, might be preferable, that these kind of wide-scale reforms are too ambitious. Do you want to talk us through that a little bit? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the uh, so Young book is also an um, excellent book, actually, so that's, um, I, re I really like the book um, around um, uh, sort of directed improvisation. I thought that was a really interesting uh, way of looking at it. Um, and um, I suppose it's, it is important to think about uh, giving the flexibility um, and uh, I was also struck by a, a, a paper by, by um, Hubert Smits on this, uh, on the case of Vietnam, mm -hmm. um, that were some provinces that were experimenting more than others mm -hmm. with, with some of a, a central uh, direction um, that gave, gave good results. I, I do think, though, that we also need to think about a targeted approach um, uh, a, a, a bit more, and also in the context of deals. So um, I think you go from uh, from open or from close to open deals, um, it's also important to think about what type of deals. What, what is the quality of these deals in terms of uh, the transformational potential, and uh, and how do they help you to, to transform your your um, your economy? In that context, if you think about a set approach, um, so what we what we're looking at in, uh, and have been looking at in a, in a range of countries is first think about what's been happening in the country in terms of transformation, and very often in low-income countries, very little has happened. Um, uh, then you think about um, uh, sort of the factors behind this. Uh, so the second block of analysis is thinking, well, what are the economic constraints, and what are the political economy constraints behind this, um, and uh, and then thirdly, you start thinking around. Uh, 
knowing this, what are sort of the policies that we need to uh, uh, be thinking uh, about to do something about uh, transformation? And then you come into um, uh, the sort of both general uh, policies, uh, sort of the horizontal type of policies, but also the vertical policies that are really important. And also the theory would, would, would actually definitely suggest that this is really important to think about the more targeted um, uh, approach. And then you come to the sort of the fourth block of analysis, which is the, the sort of the how to do it. And then you also s start realizing that that um, uh, countries that have transformed have done a range of different things, um, and and it can be sometimes too complex to do that in in a single uh, country that is still at low income country level, uh, low, low income level, and therefore. Um, try and, and, and think about uh, maybe a deal or a, a series of deals um, uh, to, um, to um, uh, around a targeted set of issues is uh, may, may have more promise of, uh, of, of actually working and so that's both for uh, from, from an economics point of view so targeted uh, and as theoretically is, is, is important solving problems of investors solving market and coordination failures that are specific. They're not necessarily uh, uh, only eco economy-wide. There are some market and coordination failures are more important than, than others to transform your economy. But it's also to say, well, actually, if you have a special economic zone, for example, you, you, there are lots of things that you need to think around to, to, to get done. Um, um, so lots of different ministries need to be involved. Lots of coordination needs to be, uh, is, is involved. And then to sort of Say well, let's let's do it around. Uh, let's coordinate our actions around the zone, um, and then that can have spillover effects. And of course, in the case of China, my understanding is that the zone building has had lots of spillover effects on the rest of the economy. Um, and uh, and so, starting somewhere from from a zone uh, or from a particular uh, sector uh, or a particular area, um, and then building that out. Uh, has both economic merits, but also my feeling also political economy merits as well. Uh, and so, so we, we're often looking into um, uh, what is it actually that you can do uh, next, and and and, uh -huh. uh, and that of course as a general economic frameworks um, are important. Um, the making markets work um, can still be important, but it's got to be more than that. Uh -huh. It's it's definitely investment climate plus plus. <laughs> uh, so it's got to be really more more than that. Um, and so it may, may not be an either or, but it's definitely uh, just have, getting the investment climate all right is definitely not enough. I think we will all agree on that. I suppose one of the uh, sort of interesting differences between uh, China and uh, the kind of countries that ODI sometimes works is that you, you say that for China, although it's a very decentralized governmental system, nevertheless, when the top leadership decides on something and sends a signal, it creates seismic changes across the country. Whereas in many of the countries that ODI works in, the top leadership can send signals, but nothing really happens, okay? So the idea that you, have, you can have this kind of big push across all sectors is maybe a little bit unrealistic. Um, and also, in many of the countries that ODI works, it's not clear that the top leadership is committed to growth anyway. So I think that one of the rationales for the SET approach is that you can go in with a demonstration project and just by showing that growth is possible, you can then begin to shift perceptions and that maybe this will have um, positive spillover effects. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, um, I want to turn to you now, Rachel, because we've been talking quite a bit about China. And of course, uh, we all know that China is, is not a democracy. 
and therefore that um, the sort of space for voice and accountability is limited. But you've been uh, doing quite a lot of work which looks at the role of voice and accountability in places like Sierra Leone in kind of improving uh, governance and, and the economy. And so I, I wonder if you can give us a, a different perspective now on, on, on how to stimulate growth. Yeah, and as I say, I, my, um, you know, my perspective is when I work on a country, I try and get stuck in to understand it and then and, and see how we can improve things from where we are. So, you know, I came into Sierra Leone in 2004, the end of the Civil War, um, and, you know, it was a democracy, and so it was more a question of, you know, how do we improve things from, mm -hmm. from where we are? Um, you know, obviously a very different history from, from China. I wouldn't say what, what we're doing necessarily has immediate transfer to, to, to China. Um, I think, so I'm also a little bit cautious about saying about, you know, do this and you're going to get growth. Um, I think actually economists need to be a little bit more um, cautious or uh, about, you know, saying, well, you can do these things and you, you suddenly get growth. Um, I think what we can say more about is you can do things and those will improve people's lives. So part of the reason I work on a, a accountability is just because it can help improve people's lives. Uh, I don't know whether it's going to lead to, you know, improve growth. But Because you think it has intrinsic value. Well, there's intrinsic value and it can also improve... Like, there's a difference between improving incomes and improving growth, mm -hmm. right? And actually most of what economists have things to say about is improving people's income or improving people's outcomes, you know, improved education, which we may value mm -hmm. for its own sake actually not quite as good at saying what leads to persistent long-run <laughs> growth, right? That's just a bigger question. And most of our theories are actually about how to improve income, not growth, because those are two different things. Sorry, a bit, you know, I just want to be clear that the limits of what, what I feel I can talk about. Um, so I think, yes, accountability is important for its own sake, but it's also important for getting people the services they need which they don't have in Sierra Leone, you know, it's worst outcome, you know, really close to the bottom in a world development indicators on pretty much everything. Uh, uh, so, so how do we get those services to work? And for that, I think we do think that accountability is really important because the government is just not delivering the basic services that people need. Um, and as I say, that, you know, looking at democracy really came from looking at a bunch of other approaches which don't seem to be very effective. And they're saying, look, this is a democracy. Um, a lot of Africa has moved to democracy, and yet it's not delivering what we were hoping it was delivering. You've still got corruption, you've still got very, the services are not responding to the needs of people. So how do we improve that link? Well, maybe let's give democracy another go, <laughs> because um, it's not working very well because people uh, in Sierra Leone, you know, there's little accountability because you have this problem that you see in many countries where people's votes is very tied to their ethnicity. So in the north, you've got uh, you know, a predominantly Temeni population, and they all vote APC. And in the south, you've got uh, a Mende population that mainly votes SLPP. So there's no real contestability um, in the elections. So kind of obviously, that's not, it's not going to lead to accountability. So what can you do about that? Well, we found that in local elections, there is more. People are willing to cross ethnic lines. 
And they have much more information about their candidates mm -hmm. at the local level. So we said, well, is it an information problem? So can you then provide people with information about the candidates and will they respond? Or is it just, no, I'm always going to vote, you know, North, I'm always going to vote APC, South, I'm always going to vote SLPP. Um, or is it just that people are voting that way because, like, why not? If you have no information, you might as well vote for your mm -hmm. local ethnic party. And surprisingly, we found if you provided, um, if you set, set up debates between candidates so that people could observe the different candidates, they, they would change how they voted suggesting that it wasn't some deeply entrenched ethnic bias, but it was just, you know, what else? I might as well, because I don't know anything else about the candidates. Um, and so people were willing to change their vote. And then, as a response, um, the, the politicians actually became more accountable. How did we measure that? They went back to their constituencies more, and when we tracked how they spent their money, they spent it more effectively. I'm not saying that's suddenly going to transform into 6% growth. Like, that's where I started, right? But it's the first step in putting in place accountability, which we think is an important thing, both on its own rights and um, just to improve services. You know, there were better roads built as a result of this. And if we can do that, I'm kind of happy with that. So if China's story is one of sort of harnessing the institutions of a, a post-Maoist bureaucracy to growth, then... Yours is a story of harnessing the institutions of a post-conflict democracy for, exactly. for, for better development. So, so how do you work with those institutions okay. that, that exist? Okay, um, Kunal, you anywhere any, any thoughts on, on this case, uh, this different approach? Um, I mean, I th uh, first of all, I think it's very important to keep in mind that there are other mechanisms by which growth can happen, and one of those very important mm -hmm. here is public delivery, education, health, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so one should not, uh, though in our book we look at particular uh, relationship between political and political and economic actors, which are deals, obviously there are other mechanisms which we haven't discussed in our book which are also important. So that's one point. The second point is that I think, though where we might differ slightly on think about accountability would be as follows, that while there's no question that more accountable institutions or more increased institutions are good for their own sake, but also for, for progressive political development, it's also true to say that, at least as far as economic growth is concerned, it might be quite one has to be careful in trying to move to inclusive institutions fairly quickly. I mean, what we do tend to see, to see is growth acceleration happen under what we call dominant party settlements, mm -hmm. which are not inclusive by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. And so pushing for inclusion at that stage might not necessarily be something that, that, might, be, that might be counterproductive as far as economic growth is concerned. Mm -hmm. So that's one point, that one has to be careful about the question of inclusion as far as the question around democratization and growth is concerned. Because very few of the uh, growth accelerations in your study actually took place under competitive regimes, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Uh -huh. Yes. Uh -huh. But then, um, is it the case that then opening up the regime politically can sometimes help sustain growth or, no, or not? I think that, again, I think so. Uh, the argument we have made is that moving, moving to more inclusive institutions or more open deals, as we call it, because we're careful not to use the word institutions here, they, have, they can be different to different, different people, is important, yes. But having said that, moving to open deals very quickly, and I think, again, you know, talks about in, in, a, in a, your book, 
prematurely is also not very uh, can be counterproductive, mm -hmm. as the Rwanda case study in our book shows, mm -hmm. where there's been an argument made by the the, the chapter authors that a premature movement into into open or the open deals in certain sectors has not been conducive to growth maintenance. So again, it's a question of the balance between order and inclusion. Just getting it right. I mean, it's not essential either or, but keeping the balance right is very important. I mean, getting the balance and getting the timing as well is, uh, is very important. Can I possibly yeah. just come back on part of that? Because I think it, what we're talking about, if you're saying impose from outside demanding that somebody move to a democrat, democracy and suddenly have a change in power, that's very different from what I'm talking about, which is uh, within a context in which there had already been changes of power, but you have this tension of the power brokers being associated with different ethnic groups, which we think from history is kind of a particularly vulnerable position to be in. <laughs> what you if you can help people see things not so much as an ethnic split, but be voting on policy as opposed to, then, you know, given the history around the war in Sierra Leone was not ethnic, I should, you know, be really clear to say, but, you know, I worry about, um, you know, saying we should have a dominant, you know, party in Sierra Leone where it's really 50-50 and, you know, and the parties are dominated by one ethnicity or another. That sounds like not a place anyone wants to go. What I'm talking about is providing information to kind of break down the salience of the ethnicities. I'd argue that's probably going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the uh, interesting findings of the, your study, Rachel, is that um, one of the, I mean, these public debates increase the responsiveness of the candidates or the, the winning candidates. And, and one of the ways they did that was by spending some more money on development from their constituency development funds. Um, but it also led to increased gift giving in those elections. And uh, so then there's kind of, there's not a kind of, that's a kind of form of corruption which often we, you know, we, we look at unfavorably. So it suggests that there's not a kind of an automatic correlation between even increasing information and debate and getting better quality public policy rights. So it's, it's kind of a tortuous road from um, increased information to, to better governance. Welcome to the messy world yeah, of development. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> is anyone surprised that uh, not everything goes exactly as, you know, in the, the very simplistic line? Um, you know, I think that's just, yes, that, that is how, the, the way we see it is, this led to an increase in contestability of these constituencies. We think, you know, there's something not great about most of the country not being contestable. Now, when you increase some contestability in these environments, you will have, um, you know, you will have, they'll contest on all sorts of different mm -hmm. fronts, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, that, and I'm not saying that this is leading to a perfect world. 
That's a shame. Uh, uh, I thought you had all the answers. Okay, well, I think that's maybe a good time to open up the, uh, the debate to the floor. Um, I, I, I want it to carry on being a conversation, really, so I'm going to ask someone to um, kick us off. And Alice, I think I saw your hand go up first. So uh, let, let's, let's have a question here. and expectations to contribute to public goods. So, for example, in the case of China, we see how bureaucrats, because of the McDonald's scheme, were incentivized to get growth for their local areas. So incentives were working that way, in a top-down way, working for the public good. Likewise, in Cambodia and in your book, we highlight how business associations, when they get strong, can force the government to build more effective governance in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. So you've got the one-stop shop, was a great quote in mm -hmm. your chapter. Mm -hmm. So it's when these institutions evolve in a co-evolutionary, mutually reinforcing process, the business associations get stronger, then they can have a bigger voice, then the government informs the rules, then they're building stronger public goods. Likewise, in Sierra Leone, when you've got another incentive structure, which is people having information about how good the services are doing, then the politicians have an incentive to improve their services, otherwise they get out. So I don't think we need to worry about whether it's democracy or whether it's authoritarianism or whether it's business associations in particular. What we need to understand is that it's incentives and expectations drive people to work towards public goods. So what we need to do in any context is think, think about, well, what's working? What could work in that context? And let's strengthen those incentives. And my only addition, so what is obviously brilliant, is to think, well, let's not just focus on the domestic incentives. Obviously, there's so much that we can do in Britain to get the international incentives right, whether it's in terms of global supply chains in Cambodia, Bangladesh, environmental incentives, so that you know, people see it as there's an international incentive to get governance right and work for pro for experimentation. So just a common thread there. Thank you. Um, panel, any responses to that point? You wouldn't get an argument from an economist that incentives matter. <laughs> yes, in the public goods, you know, we need more incentives for public goods. And I think in the audience, if you have a point that's kind of directly related to that point, you can put sort of two fingers up like this, and I can tr I can try. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but from the back here, then let's let's have a response to that. Have you got the, have you got your mic on actually? Thank you. Does that work? Yes, Peter Newborn, Research Associate, ODI. I'd like to ask Yen Yen, your presentation was very interesting, I haven't read the book, but when you talk about 50 million bureaucrats, yeah. I mean, what does that word bureaucrat mean? I mean, are these in fact political leaders in your system? And so my question to get a commonality and learn from the Chinese experience is what is the equivalent in other countries? Um, because these are people who've managed to use this sort of incentive system to, to sort of foster economic activity and growth. 
Um, but they're not what we would think of bureaucrats or civil servants in many other contexts, who in some countries, I have the impression, just write plans more than perhaps in China and, and, and do have a different function and are not political leaders. So can you comment on that? Because they're almost like entrepreneurs, you know, CEOs of, of provincial sort of public companies, if you see what I mean. Yes, on that point. So when I say the party state bureaucracy, 50 million, I'm referring to people who work in the public administration. Yeah. So th including party organs and administrative offices, everything from police, economic planning, um, and so forth. Um, this excludes the military, excludes state-owned enterprises uh, and universities. If you bring that in, the bureaucracy would be even larger. So when I say the administration, 50 million people working in it, 20% um, have the formal status of a civil servant. And these people tend to be in more planning sort of roles, and the rest of them are the street level implementers. Um, and in the 20% of the civil servants, 1% would be the leadership. So this is roughly, so it's a very big pyramid basically. So what's the in China. equivalent in other countries? What's the equivalent? Well, in other countries, you have the public administration, right? And then you have the leadership. The difference is that the leadership in democracies are elected by the people. But in China, the bureaucracy is, the bureaucracy is not elected by the people. Right? And, so, so, and they're all appointed top down. So that's how I would think about the equivalent. Yeah. yeah. And could I get back to Alice's point? Or should yes, sure. sure. Yeah. Um, so Alice's uh, great question. I would, Meta, meta your question, <laughs> which is I think the broader issue that you've raised, not only incentives, but I think the broader theme here is that I think good principles can manifest in numerous ways. So I actually completely agree with Rachel's point that voice and accountability are absolutely necessary for economic growth, and China is the best example of that. And I am comfortable saying this in Beijing. I think the Chinese policymakers would agree with me because they themselves are the beneficiary of having a greater voice and clearer accountability since market reforms began. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because some people will be, will be, I think some people will be surprised by that statement. So maybe, maybe you can put some, uh, some flesh on the bones I, I of that. Think when we think, I think when we say voice and accountability, we immediately think democracy, mm -hmm. right? So we think, elections, we think about, um, you know, like town councils, having citizens come. So we think about democratic institutions. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to understand that even in a single party dictatorship, you can introduce voice and accountability, which is necessary for economic growth. And that's exactly what we see uh, in China. So once they had market reforms, they gave the bureaucrats a lot more voice. They can debate. Mm -hmm. Under Mao, you couldn't. If you <coughs> criticize him, you'll be persecuted. But when Deng came to power, you know, he actively encouraged debate within the bureaucracy. And when you have a very big bureaucracy, that's still a lot of debate. You, know? mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have to have one billion people participate. <laughs> uh, okay, well, I mean, I think uh, this is an appropriate time to bring in uh, a question from our online audience. Nikolai Schultz um, asks, you know, why was it that the Chinese central government was so committed to growth? Were there particular pressures on it that were driving that? I think when we talk about the Chinese leadership, we need to distinguish between different 
leadership administrations mm -hmm. because they had several changes in leadership. Well, let's start with Deng Xiaoping. Right, then. with Deng Xiaoping, um, his goal was actually much simpler, which was putting food on, on the table. Mm -hmm. So he didn't actually think about, we're going to become a market economy. He, mm -hmm. no, he, he did not think about that. And therefore, mm -hmm. in the 1980s, the goal was, was the, the theme was called uh, crossing the river by touching the stones, mm -hmm. meaning they had no idea what was going to be across the river, just put food on people's table. I mean, is, yeah. it, is it fear that the leadership are going to be overthrown in a popular uprising because I think people... So. I think it was just the imperative because uh -huh. the country at the time was uh -huh. in shambles. Uh -huh. right? Remember, um, massive starvation during the Great Leap Forward, widespread poverty, chaos of the cultural revolution. He was just really trying to keep things together. Okay. So in, in a sense, it was a modest goal, but with such a big country, I guess that's not really a modest goal. Mm -hmm. But he didn't have a clear vision of what you know, that we were going to have a market transition. Mm -hmm. But in the 1990s, <coughs> leadership had a very clear vision that oh, we are going to build a market economy, but with the CCP in power. And so I think when we talk about the Chinese leadership, we, we really need to make a very sharp distinction between different Chinese leaderships. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. And uh, I mean, a follow-up question to that, again from Nikolai, is, um, you know, we've talked a lot about incentives. We've talked about the carrots that the kind of local level bureaucrats received to, to bring in investment. But were there any sticks? You know, how did the, uh, you know, how did the top leadership, in what other ways did they direct this, this investment drive? Um, th there were sticks. Um, sometimes they were just really pretty a brute sticks, as in, in the investment program that I described, if you succeed, you get to keep a share of it, just commission system. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, if you actually underperform, your agency has to pay a fine, a penalty for underperforming. Mm -hmm. Right. The agency operates like a, you know, like basically a corporation within a franchise. So you have to, you will be rewarded and penalized for your performance. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And the central authorities <laughs> really have the power to enforce that. <laughs> Um, when we say the central authority, I need to qualify that uh -huh, because Beijing never told them to do this. Okay. The localities came up with okay. it themselves. Okay, okay, great. Yeah. Um, so, um, I, the man in the light blue shirt with the beard, I, I saw your hand go up first. Uh, thank you very much. Marcus Manuel, also from the Overseas Development Institute. Um, two questions. One, just to pick up where we are on the China issue. I mean, one of the issues clearly was you inherited a thousand years of bureaucracy and you inherited a competitive process to getting into that. And people have said, well, that's actually part of the whole East Asian mystery miracle. I just wonder if you want to comment on that. I mean, you had a competitive bureaucracy. Was that part of the process? So you coming into it. And then to take it back to the Africa, you know, let's talk about Uganda to bring in another country where you've seen very strong developmental leadership in Museveni in the 80s and 90s. He then discovered the value of selling votes by you know, free education and free health. There was some responsiveness about delivery. And then he discovered that you can actually keep control by just being you know, very corrupt and taking all the money out. Let's characterize. But I'd be interested to, you know, we talk a lot about China. Can we talk about another context as well and how all these arguments play out? Thank you. Well, you went first. I suppose that, that, that should go to, to you. Uh, let's, re let's respond to that. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a question that many people ask about this, you know, this Confucian bureaucracy and the Chinese government themselves like to promote that. I, I myself am not a big fan of, of, of that argument. I think it tends to be construed as, oh, China had a Confucian bureaucracy and, 
and therefore, you know, it's like a success is, is, is a foregone conclusion. It was easy for them to do that. I think it's uh, some facts to bear in mind is that they had about a 30-year period under Mao where it was not a meritocracy. Mao specifically hated technocrats. He did not like intellectuals. Right? He had several campaigns where he basically, you know, found out who's the intellectual, who are the people criticizing him, and put them all in jail. <laughs> he really stripped the country of the educated people. And so for 30 years, you're talking about a bureaucracy that was lacking educated, technocratic people. And so the amazing thing, once you put that in context, is that when market reforms started, they had to start with a bureaucracy that was not a technocracy, that was really lacking in highly educated, technocratic people, which they then subsequently, within a very short amount of time, build up once markets open. Okay, thank you very yeah. much. And Kunal, there's a Uganda chapter in, uh, in the Deals and Development book. Um, does that shed an, any light on this question about, you know, Museveni is changing strategies for staying in power? Um, I mean, Uganda, as you and, and Tim, you yourself have done some work on Uganda as part of, a, of our project on health, as part of the Effective States Inclusive Development Research Center's work, and I think, you know, you can also talk on that if you, you, you have to. <laughs> but the point here is that there was a shift in the Ugandan political settlement mm -hmm. from a strong dominant party settlement in Museveni in the early years to a weakening, a weak dominant party settlement where patronage-based mechanism become more, became more important, not just on growth, of course, but also on other, around delivery of public goods and so on. So it was really to do with the change in political settlement that happened in, in Uganda that manifested itself in many different ways, which I think perhaps in the Chinese case is not so obvious. I mean, mm -hmm. in China, it could be fair to say it's still a strong dominant party uh, settlement. Um, you know, not yeah. one leader, but definitely right. much more. Exactly, like a Singaporean. Yeah. So I think there are differences in the settlements, evolution of settlements over time, or why that happens. That's something that's more, more, much more difficult to explain. But certainly the nature of the settlement in Uganda was very different and, and changed over time, and that might explain the differences. Yeah, I mean, I think one answer from within the framework is that over time, within Uganda, you see uh, lower-level factions um, within Museveni's party becoming stronger, and that actually uh, reduces the ability of the top leadership to kind of plan long-term for development and make kind of a, a effective uh, long horizon strategic interventions and, and instead throws the emphasis on to kind of vote buying, you know, crony capitalism and, and so on and so forth. Uh, Dirk. Yeah, I, I just wanted to come in on the, on the range of issues, um, which is around uh, sort of the accountability and civil service. I suppose the uh, so accountability has different levels uh, of accountability, but one is uh, in this context also sort of mutual accountability between the public and the private sector at a lower level, so, yeah. so at a lower level. And can um, bureaucrats, can they actually be do something helpful <laughs> for, uh, for, for the private sector to actually solve their problems? And, um, and I suppose that's where we, we get different uh, expectations, different uh, views. Uh, even in, uh, in, in, in uh, across African countries, of course, where investors really like the idea that the Ethiopian Investment Promotion Agency has uh, officials in them that are speci specifically dedicated to their to their investment, for example, and to solve problems. Um, uh, in the case of Rwanda, you might also have something uh, uh, like that, perhaps a bit less so. But if you go to another country uh, with a, a big letter T um, uh, in, on the coast, there, so, uh, then you don't see the same 
level of 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 uh, of help from uh, the civil servants for the private sector. And whilst the the, the plan uh, of the country is for for is to look at terms of industrialization, it is there to. Um, um, to, to think around uh, priority actions. There is something around, for example, special economic zone building uh, in, 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 in a country, but then the, the civil servants don't actually um, then follow that up. And uh, so you don't, you don't necessarily get the, the, the mutual uh, account, uh, accountability between the, 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 the public sector officials and the, uh, and the private sector, and that there's not that understanding of working together. And I think that's what I really learned from, from at least the, the Chinese case, where there's a lot of working together, adjusting, and so on. And you get that in a lot of other Asian countries, at least from my under understanding of it. But we, we, we're really hoping that that is going to take place also in, 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 uh, in, in African countries. Um, or at least much more so, and that, you, that we had sort of 30, 40 years ago that where the state was owning the, the private sector, they owned the productive ca capabilities, then they completely withdrew for, for various reasons from, from production. But there's, of course, we're now, there's now more, of, uh, we need something in between, that, that actually the, private sector, the, the public sector can do something positive. Uh, of course, you need to get the, you get the incentives right for the private sector to act well, but there's something complementary. You need to provide also signals. The, uh, you need to think about fostering clustering, for example. It isn't just about getting the, the, in, uh, the incentives right for the, for, the, for the private sector. It's doing more. And, and having uh, the incentive in the public sector to do that is, is an important <coughs> question. And actually doing, going more towards the, the co-evolution model in China, um, how you do that, that will be quite interesting. Uh, challenge uh, how you do it gradually, I think. I mean, we have talked a lot about uh, incentives, and Alice made this sort of meta point that it was all about incentives, but uh, there is a sort of subplot in these works about the importance of ideas, yeah. and that kind of changing the receptiveness of the bureaucracy to ideas about growth, to ideas about economic policy, uh, can be kind of equally important in causing these growth accelerations. I mean, I think we saw that in India, which in some ways doesn't fit the other cases in terms of the political arrangements it had in place when its growth acceleration started. Nevertheless, it was kind of a shift from a socialist to a pro-market ideology, which was sufficient, really, to stimulate quite a lot of investment. Absolutely. I mean, the one thing I, I should say, and I didn't say, sorry, I should have mentioned this earlier about Union's book, but what I find quite remarkable in the book is that this debate about what I call second-best institutions, mm -hmm. the Roderick kind of terminology and the good enough governance debate, I kind of felt we had moved into a kind of place where I don't think it was moving very much, where there would be this view that it's kind of a normative view, the second best is okay for Africa, but first best is okay for Denmark or Sweden or whatever. What Yumin argues is that what China did was first best. That mm -hmm. was, that's remarkable. Mm -hmm. So in other words, in that context, when you have weak institutions, form institutions, and weak human capital uh, uh, and weak technological cap capabilities, what you do is you try and build markets. And that's a first-best strategy. That's not a second-best strategy. And I think that really changed the parameters, the way we think about this question about good enough governance versus good governance, first-best versus second-best institutional reform. Because I think once we move into this very murky area of second-best, we do get normative issues that why second best? Why, why should we have? Why, why should, should we have the second best? Exactly, yeah. and I think that's a valid question. Yeah, yeah. But if you see this as a first best strategy that you do, and those sorts of conditions, and then as you, uh, with coevolution, you move to some other kind of strategy when you can move to more kind of good, good type, good governance, then you can see that each in each context you, you have to have 
particular strategy which are first best optimal in that context. And I think that's a game changer in my view because that's yeah. something that we hadn't thought about. Uh, in this I, I agree. That's a, another very kind of interesting part part of your book, Yuan Yuan. Okay, something else from uh, the audience? Yes, here. Hello, Kate Bird, ODI. Just to um, see if I can prompt the panel to take the discussion in a slightly different direction. I've found the discussion so far really fascinating, but what I feel is missing from the debate is any discussion about differentiation within populations. And I'd like to hear if, if there are lessons from your analysis for how the very poorest people can be engaged in growth processes on good terms, so in markets, including in jobs, jobs marks, markets and, and in uh, enterprise of every kind. Thank you very much. Can I add to that, please? Because I think the issue of spatial... Stephen Gelb, also from ODI. Spatial inequality needs to be taken into account, and I'd be interested to know how either of these two models, which are somewhat complementary perhaps, look at that. Because in China and in India, actually, and I'd, I'd be interested to hear Kunal talk a bit more about how India fits this model or not. Um, but in both China and India, Nigeria, another country that's been mentioned, you've got massive spatial inequalities which have gotten worse as growth has happened in the national economy. And I think that picks up on, uh, in important ways on what Kate's talking about. Okay, well, perhaps we can have one or two more questions on this theme of inequality, distribution, poverty, directly, uh, directly related. Yes, at the back. I, I cheated. Is that on? Is that on? Yeah. Okay, I cheated. It's not really directly related, but <laughs> I'm not Someone sure I'm going to get my question in otherwise. Away from her. <laughs> uh, so, um, um, my name's Liz May and I work at Tradecraft. Um, I just wanted to observe that the conversation so far seems to um, kind of assume that we're in some kind of international political vacuum where what happens at the national level uh, can be directed uh, with some kind of degree of autonomy. And I think we need to recognize that for a lot of countries, the needs of donors, the needs of investors, um, the needs of international NGOs, uh, the constraints placed on them by trade agreements, etc., massively constrain the ability for them to pursue different policy choices. And so it seems for me that for China, that, that was perhaps less of a constraint, but for many other countries, they don't have that freedom to single-mindedly pursue the strategy that they've decided on because there are so many other competing factors and, and, and forces that they're, that they're having to respond to. And I would just be interested what the panel think about that. Okay, well, that's a slightly different point. But let's, let's um, start with these points about inequality. Uh, well, I, I want to pick up on the spatial one because I think that's really important. I do a lot of work in Bangladesh and Sierra Leone. And, you know, just from the minute you work, walk off the plane, you are struck by the spatial differences here. Like, one is incredibly, um, you know, has high concentration of labor to land, and the other is incredibly dispersed. Right? And when I hear about these general discussions about how do you get growth and how do you get Africa to be like East Asia, I'm like, can we stop and just think about the fact that, you know, in Bangladesh there is this massive pool of labor that you can pull into manufacturing, and you want to get 
anywhere in Sierra Leone and the people want to get anywhere, it's really expensive. It's You've just got to think about these things differently. Uh, if we're not thinking about spatial um, differences, uh, you know, you, there's, there's no way we can be getting it right because it's just so fundamentally different. And I think... Uh, you know, and my, one of my predecessors in this job of chief economist sort of made this um, uh, point about land labor ratios in Africa, and you know, maybe it's looking more like a Latin America. And so I just, you know, I think we do need to think about these differences when we talk about um, uh, talk about possible routes to growth. Uh, and if we're not factoring in, you know, people talked about investment in infrastructure in Africa. Well, again, you know, if there's very few people per mile of road, it's going to be a really different investment payoff there than in Bangladesh, where, you know, I can't tell the difference between, I randomize by village, you can't tell where one stops and the other starts. I mean, it's just people. Uh, whereas I've got lovely, you know, five, miles between my villages in Sierra Leone. And it's really, it's really fundamental. Um, in terms of, um, I also just wanted to come back on the, the point about, um, uh, about Uganda and kind of, which linked to, you know, shouldn't you be taking into account the long-term history um, of, of China and in that influence? Um, the, you know, there is a lot of evidence that these long-term historical um, patterns do, you know, do have then these persistent effects um, uh, and which does bring back that, you know, accountability and voice can have important effects in, on long-term economic outcomes. So within Sierra Leone, just to stick there again, you know, people have found that contestability in the, in the, um, amongst the chiefs uh, you know, way back, you know, how many sons there were in the chiefs in different parts of Sierra Leone when the British came now still has an effect now. Why? Because you had these different families who could then compete against each other for control in an area versus if there was only one son, then there's only one lineage and therefore there's no contestability. So you just get these, you know, long-term um, impacts. And so... Yes, there may have, we may have lost the bureaucracy for 30 years, but the fact that it was there, I think, is very, very different from a situation where you know every all the decisions were being made by these chiefs who were it was all hereditary, and you know, and we see the we see that playing out now in economic impacts. Now, what what the contestability was, uh, you know, a century ago. Uh, so we're getting into a question of sort of long-term path dependence, but maybe you anyway, and I can bring you back to this sort of spatial inequality point, because I wonder whether you're also talking about inequalities within countries. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, so maybe I, I could address the uh, inequality and poverty issues with uh, sort of three quick comments. The first is about how China reduced poverty using a sequence of approaches, right? So I, I just said that they had, re they had lifted 700 million people out of poverty, not using poverty programs, but simply through market liberalization and national development. Then in 2012, then Xi Jinping came in, and then he started to have very, very aggressive 
anti-poverty targeted at particular households and community. So the good news is, no, anti-poverty programs are still completely relevant. But uh, in China's context, what they did is first you just kickstart the economy and, you, and you, they reduce poverty in the first 35 years by raising average income, creating jobs. Um, but at the same time, because there, were, there was no redistribution in place, it, it created a tremendous income inequality in China. So by 2012, in terms of the Gini coefficient, China was more unequal than the US. And so that is why in 2012, when Xi Jinping came to office, he decided that one of his key mandates is to have a very aggressive scheme of anti-poverty programs. So, it's, so it happened in sequence. Um, but nevertheless, yeah. I mean, uh, Deng Xiaoping, I think he says it's okay for people to, some people to get rich before, that was for, yeah. entire philosophy. Yeah. It, was not about, um, it was not about redistributing money to uh -huh. the poor. He was like, let's open the markets. Let's have free competition, yeah. and if you're competent, you get rich, that's fine. Whereas now in, in the world yeah. of the SDGs and this um, doctrine of leave no one behind, there's an idea that you know, the SDGs will not be achieved unless they're achieved equally for all segments of society. So that's kind of very different to the, to the Chinese approach, right? Um, any, Dirk? I, mean, I, I think also, I, mean, I think we should also um, mention and can also, your approach in this, which is really important because mm -hmm making sure that you don't have downturns, um, that will help the poorest uh, quite a lot. So you don't want to have shocks. How do you do that? Uh, the answer in the book is work on the governance side. Um, I mean, uh, you can't do that very easily, of course, for recognizing. But if you, uh, if that, if you get that right, how, how do you work on the, uh, on the governance side? I think there were three recommendations at the end of the book. And one was about uh, coalitions, so uh, working with coalitions. And working with, for example, the magicians. And the magicians um, uh, uh, may not be always where the poorest are. Um, so if you think a bit about sort of, uh, if you want to work your way, uh, you want to transform your economy into a different economy, you want to make sure you, you work with the right coalitions to get you into a direction which is a transformed economy. And doing that, you may need to think about uh, not just targeting uh, only working with the poorest, but also with those that are inclined to, to think about reforms that help the poorest as well. And so that, of course, is a tricky debate because we don't want to think about trickle-down here. Uh, I also want to think about uh, bottom-up uh, uh, development, I suppose, uh, in, this in this context as well. But I think w you, there is, a, there, there is a potentially a trade-off or working together, that you work with reformers um, uh, and, and those that have influence on the reforms to, to, to get a transformed economy that can create broad-based employment, for, including for the poorest. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dirk. Okay, I think maybe time for uh, one more question, the gentleman here, and then maybe Marta, can, maybe Marta, you can kind of wrap up a little bit. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's uh, Stephen Lee from uh, OPM. So I was, I was going to ask Kunal really whether he'd, I, I think he's got a kind of rules uh, um, deals dichotomy in the book, and I, but I wondered how applied that was to bureaucracies. And I'm asking because in my experience anyway, if I want to characterize an African bureaucracy, often it's, there's a rule book, but in fact, lots of the parameters, uh, 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 we should take what people can do, lower down their bureaucracy as sort of uh, they're arranged by a series of personal arrangements, sort of deals, and um, and even if those those that string of uh, um, personal relationships goes all the way to the president, that those sorts of bureaucracies seem to be quite resilient to things that the president says and policy changes. They're quite hard to shift. Whereas 
the story we've just had about the Chinese bureaucracy. I, I mean, it, it sounds like a big trick to, to tell 15 million bureaucrats that they've got uh, quite a lot of freedoms, but within strict parameters. And that sounds like a very rule-based system. And it, and it also sounds very rules-based if it's possible for the top to make a change which is implemented very quickly. That just sounds like a rule change which is observed. I wondered if you thought about that, Kunal, really, and, and, and whether that is a way of working out whether you can reproduce what's done in China in a, in a place where you've got a bureaucracy that works in a very different way. I mean, again, one has to be careful about the different rules and deals. Um, I mean, you may argue in a book that China didn't have a Weberian bureaucracy at the time of the growth acceleration, didn't have professionalism and competence in the way we think of Weberian bureaucracies, but the bureaucrats managed to find ways to experiment and bring about growth. So it's not that, so again, if you look at the Chinese example, it wasn't really about rules-based bureaucrats at that time, <coughs> that, that changed, um, but where bureaucrats were given space to improvise. Uh, so in a way, the de facto comes in, but the question then is that, in the African context, and uh, and I'm, I'm you know I'm just sort of trying to think through what could how it could apply to your argument, where we have essentially de jure in terms of the st how the state looks like, and this is the argument Lant has made with Matt Andrews and Michael Woolcock. But what we really see are very something very different. So this argument is morphism. So really, then the question is, how can we make states in Africa, which are also not Weberian bureaucracies? behave the way the state did in China in the 1980s, when China really started out mm -hmm. the restoration, where you had selection of good projects, where you had variation in functional form, in, fun in function, where you had different kinds of ways the state improvised with a very de facto system, not a de jure or a rules-based system. So that's, I think, I mean, so I suppose the lesson for, I mean, the thing to think through for others who think about other country contexts is can one think it think through how that can be replicated in an African context or in a South Asian context? It's not so clear. I mean, I have to say, I was struggling to think about how I could think about in the Indian case, where we also have a very, uh, very a flailing state. So I think those are really interesting questions, which I think we have to think through. That we are not living in a Weberian-style world of bureaucrats in the type that we think should be there in, in developing countries. But then, when you are in a de facto world, of how actually things take place in among in bureaucracies, what's the optimal functioning function of how do we actually devise a mechanism that we saw happen in China in that period in a way that does that does the job and does the growth? I don't think I, I mean I have an answer, but uh, I'm interested. Even do you have any thoughts on that? I'm sorry, then I'll just uh, <laughs> open your room. No, go ahead. <laughs> I think uh, we're going to have an afternoon seminar where we're going to uh, brainstorm <laughs> exactly that question you asked. But I, I think that there's sort of a, a broader comment I, I could make about that is that um, we have to bear in mind that it is a very distinguishing feature that China is a single party dictatorship. And therefore, in this context, the agents of innovation are the bureaucrats. And when we look at the rest of the developing world, like India, you have a democracy. And so I think when we talk about replicating the China lessons, we have, I think I would be cautious about saying, let's make the Indian bureaucracy like China, the Chinese bureaucracy. That's just not going to happen because India is a democracy. Even if you had a competent bureaucracy, they'll be just constrained by gridlocks, right? legislative bickering and so forth. And so I think when we think about how do we promote effect, uh, effective adaptation, improvisation in countries like India, we need to put the attention on social actors, 
on society. Mm -hmm. but, but then we need to think about who's going to direct them, who's going to help them provide the incentives, shape the process of improvisation, who's going to play the role of the central leadership, a kind of substitute for the central leadership. And maybe that's how I would think about transferring those lessons, because regime types do matter. So, so in each society, you know, you might ask, you know, which are the actors that are most likely to be able to, to drive growth and what kind of coalitions are, That's right. are realistically imaginable That's right. in this context. Right. And, are, and, and some they may be fairly yeah. kind of state-centered and others yes. they may be fairly society-centric yes. um, and others it will definitely, yeah. be, a definitely be a mix. Um, I think that's probably a good time to bring the event to a close. So I'd like to, to thank uh, our audience uh, online and here in London. And I'd like to thank very much our speakers for, for coming and contributing to this very stimulating event. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.